backwards. That's all right. Good morning, church. How is everybody today? Good. Brother Dale had to kind of twist your arm to get it out of you this morning. I agree, though. Christ is exalted on the throne now as well as forever and will return one day. That is enough to say hallelujah. That's enough to say I'm good, right? Um, thank you all this morning for allowing me the opportunity to be here. Again, Pastor Greg is in Arkansas with Taylor and his church. He was asked to, to preach out there. So it's an awesome opportunity to be praying for him as he preaches. Uh, this morning we're in Joshua chapter 1. Book of Joshua chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, go to Exodus where you've been turning for several weeks. Uh, going through the book of Exodus. Keep going right. If you've hit Judges, you've gone too far. Take a left. Uh, book right before Judges. Joshua, it's the, uh, it's the first book outside of the first five books of the Bible, uh, formerly known as the Pentateuch, the law of God. Um, a lot of things go on in the first five books of the Bible between Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. And we will touch on a few of the themes because they do appear in Joshua chapter 1. So as we get there, I'm going to read the text. We're going to pray right after that, and then we'll uh, dive into this morning's sermon. Again, thank you all so much for allowing me to be here. Let's read Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This may sound very familiar to you, and one of the things I love most about preaching is being able to have an opportunity to look at a scripture um, with semi-fresh eyes. A lot of people, um, I think it's virtually impossible to come at a text with zero to no bias, but it is important to try and lay that aside in order to hear what the text is saying explicitly, what God is saying through the text as much as possible. We want the text to be the thing that is what drives our views, our ideas, our opinions. We do not want our opinions, our ideas, or even our own theologies to determine our reading of the scripture. So with that being said, as much as we can, let's together walk through the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1, which will sound very familiar to a lot of you, but hopefully we'll be able to take some things away this morning together as a church body and be able to live it out practically. So Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, which today would be known as the Mediterranean, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success. Wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? 
Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Would you pray with me? Our sovereign Lord, we glorify your name. We lay down what we have before you, knowing that we would not have it in the first place if it were not for you. You are the author, the creator, the standard of righteousness and the standard of goodness. Will we see that clearly here? Help us to see that together through your word this morning. Help us to make the right conclusions come to the right places, to make the right applications about your word to your glory and for our good that we may see you more clearly, understand you more deeply, love you, love you more intimately. Help us to love you this morning with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength and help us to go out from this place loving each other and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this dependent upon you and upon your spirit to do that work within us, taking responsibility for that which we must do ourselves as well. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Um, if you did not know this about me, um, I'm a huge nerd about a lot of things. Um, Sydney Megan back here is like, yeah. Um, I'm a huge nerd. One of the things that I uh, like to, to nerd out about is the Lord of the Rings. I'm that kind of nerd. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, I, I read it a long time ago in high school because I, I hated reading things, but I'll read anything that has to do with sword fights, um, brave fellowships, destruction, darkness, good, triumphing over evil any day. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings. Um, I have not read the, uh, the series uh, for many years, but I love watching the movies as well. But it's been uh, recently, it's, uh, for whatever reason, it's always during the fall time that I enjoy watching these movies. I don't know if it's uh, because I started reading the, the books when I was in high school in the, in the fall time, but for whatever reason, when the fall rolls around, it's time to watch Lord of the Rings, in my opinion. Um, Jenny dreads it. It's almost like, it's almost like football. It's just going to be on at some point in my house, either that or it's on my phone. But the, one of the things I love most about the series is the way that um, the writer J.R. Tolkien, who was actually a contemporary and a good friend of C.S. Lewis, many of you may know him, um, was the way in which he portrayed good versus evil, the, the, the classic struggle that exists, especially within the hearts of man, um, who are so easily deceived and so easily captivated by power, but the, the struggle between good and evil, looking past the darkness. But there's a, if you don't know what the storyline is, there's a great darkness, a great power that exists within the, the, this world of Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't have details to go into all of it, and I would bore you, and you would uh, quickly tune out. You may have already tuned out by now. But there is this 
these two creatures, actually there, there, there are several, they're known as hobbits, they're halflings, they're about the half the size of a normal person, but they are responsible for taking what is known as the ring of power and trying to destroy it before the darkness is able to claim it as the most ultimate weapon in order to encamp the entire world in darkness and destruction. So these two, uh, two halflings known as Frodo and Samwise, um, they're good friends. They set out on a journey to destroy this great power, which cannot be destroyed by any mere mortal weapon. It has to be taken to a specific place. This long journey into a land that is strange, foreign, um, destructive, in order to destroy and defeat darkness by throwing the ring of power and be de destroying it. It's a journey of suffering. It's a journey of anguish. Exhaustion, uncertainty, doubt, hardship, no doubts, very similar to that which we are experiencing and seeing in the story of Exodus, the, the, the real life story that happened to the, uh, the Israelite people. But there's a point in which, the, in the second movie, at a, at a point where the person carrying the ring, his name is Frodo, he is uncertain about whether he's up to the task of actually completing his mission of destroying the ring of power and defeating all darkness. He's been carrying it's a heavy burden to carry, and he's broken and demoralized. His friend Sam actually is the one who encourages his heart, and that's where I want to do with his message this morning, is to encourage the hearts of my church family because I see it. I read the news, I see your faces, I talk to many of you, I see the burden. I see the heaviness. I see the anxiety and the uncertainty, the doubt, the brokenness. And my message today is one of encouragement because that's what the Lord does for Joshua. But these are the words that Sam, Frodo's good friend, gives to him to encourage him. He recognizes that the situation that they're in is much worse than they could have imagined. But Sam says this, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. They were full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way that it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those, those are the stories that, that stayed with you, the ones that meant something even if you were too small to understand why, but I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Out of his exhaustion and his doubt, Frodo responds, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam says that there's some good in this world. And that's worth fighting for. 
I'm grateful for the way that God uses the talents and the gifts of people to help us grow in our understanding of him and his word. Um, there's a well-known pastor and, and preacher named Tom Askell. Um, he says that there are many things that we can learn from others. There are many things that we should delight in the, in the learning of others and the teaching of others. But as I, as a pastor, should, should know that while I want to listen to anyone who can help me think rightly about, the area, about any area of life, that what I, what I have in God's word is enough to fulfill my ministry. There are other teachers, but they only serve me only to the degree that they help me to understand the word and its implications better. As much as I love the Lord of the Rings, it does not compare to the truth of God's word. It is merely a picture. It is merely a symbol of that which has already been expressed here. Um, Charles Spurgeon also said, "Live in many." Er, he said, "Visit many good books, but live in the Scriptures, because that is where we are directed to. That's where the the Creator, the Author, the, the Perfecter of our faith resides, is in the Scriptures." As we're working through the book of Exodus, uh, as Pastor has been so in such great detail and exposition as he's been leading us through the book of, uh, of Exodus, it's been amazing to see the plan and the providence of God, how he is bringing his people, staying true to his word, true to his promise to Abraham, bringing his people out of the bondage of Egypt, making them a great nation. And here in Joshua, we see the transition. We see the transition of God keeping his promise to Israel to lead them out of that bondage, but now it's a matter of leading them into the promised land. And we're going to make some observations in a, in a moment, but some things that we need to understand about Joshua is where it's positioned in the canon of Scripture. Between the five first, first five books of the Bible, the law, and between the book of Judges, we know that the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible, God is gracious, God is good. His goodness is seen through his giving of the law. In fact, Christ even himself mentions in the New Testament that the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the law of Moses. But we see that in the giving of the law, it reflects and it shows us very clearly how wretched we truly are. God's law is a perfect standard, but also through the perfect standard, we see our fallenness. We see the frailty of our lives as people. Israel experienced that. Israel experienced great periods of, of trust and of faith, but they also experienced great periods of doubt, discouragement, and they allowed that to shadow all the great things that God had been doing and had done for them, so much so to where they even said, we should go back to Egypt. That's the forefront. So much so, their, their, their constant back and forthness, and Moses is a victim as well. God pronounces a judgment upon the nation of Israel so that everyone at the time, 20 years and older, would not be allowed to enter the promised land and enter the rest of God. Joshua chapter 1 is the transition the movement from God's faithfulness, his goodness to keep his word to Abraham, to bring them out of Egypt, to bring out the Israelites, to deliver them through Moses. And now it's through Joshua, not Moses, that he will deliver them into the promised land. Joshua has a very close relationship with Moses. 
He, uh, he learned how to be a spiritual leader um, back in... He learned how to be a spiritual leader back in Exodus 24 when he was invited by Moses, the only one that was invited by Moses to go up onto the mountain. He was trained to be a military leader. Remember uh, early in Exodus when he was um, called to, uh, to, to defend and to be in charge of defeating the Amalekites? He was also responsible. He was uh, partnered with Caleb to be a spy for a reconnaissance mission to go into the promised land to see what it would be like. One of, he was one of the spies. He was also raised to be a civil and social leader the same way that Moses was. So it's not as though he was left in the dark. It's not as though he had no idea that this was happening. The transition actually had begun as Moses was getting older. Joshua knew this day was coming. Joshua knew that what was happening was about to take place. He also knew that his mentor, his, his spiritual father, was not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. Joshua also falls right before the book of Judges. A common theme throughout the entire book of Judges is that the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Yes, there were periods of great trust, but there were also greater periods of doubt and discouragement and, and flakiness, not faithfulness. Joshua falls right in the middle between these two places. Not to build up Joshua, but to show us and reveal to us the goodness of God in the midst of uncertain times. The fact that God remains with his people, and not only remains with them, not only continues to speak to them, but one day he condescends to our level. He comes to us in the person of Christ. Here in Joshua, which is interesting, the book bears his name, but he's not the, the chief player. He's not the chief character. He's not, Joshua is not the Frodo or the Sam of this story, the chief person in this tale is the person of God himself and how he is intimately, intimately interacting with his people through his word. That's the first thing that we see in Joshua chapter 1. Look at it with me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, at this point, Joshua, the only two people before him who were given the title servant of the Lord were Moses and Abraham. Those are big shoes to fill. Moses, my servant, is dead. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, listen to what he says. Moses, my servant, is dead. Let's move on. This did not throw God off. This did not put God in an awkward place. This did not cause God to reach into his bag of tricks and try to correct that which was unplanned. God gave special significance to Moses at the end of his life. You can read about that actually in the, the page right before in Deuteronomy uh, 34 about how he treated Moses' life, gave him special significance and recognition, but ultimately it was not Moses who delivered the people out of, out of Egypt. It was God himself. The fact that Joshua lands between the constant waveringness of Israel in the, in the books of the law and between the, the 
people of Israel who did what was right in their own eyes in the book of Judges shows that God is never willing to go against what he has already promised. I love what Paul Tripp said last week in the, the evening service, that the promise of God is only as good as the extent of his sovereignty. Meaning, God is sovereign, therefore we rest and we take comfort in the fact that what he has promised, he will accomplish. There's some overarching observations that we need to make about this text as we explore it together. Two of which, um, the the main two, um, the frailty of man, the frailty of man, and the faithfulness of God. The frailty of man and the faithfulness of God. Verse 2 shows it very clearly. Moses is dead. Moses is dead. He's gone. Your mentor. He's, he is no more. We all have limited time here on this earth. We all have a very short amount of time to do that which God has called and purposed for us to do. And Moses was at the end of his Again, Joshua was not taken off guard. Joshua was not surprised by what was about to happen. He knew it was, it was coming. He was being trained. He was being conditioned for it. But can you imagine Joshua's realization that now all the responsibility falls to me? You know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to have that crushing, overwhelming sense of the responsibility that you have to do, what you do around the people that you're around, Accomplish what you need to accomplish. It's exhausting. And there are many times that the things that we are overwhelmed by seem to be the loudest voice that we can hear. Over and over again, we're, we're stricken with doubt, fear, discouragement, because we see what we have to do. We, we see others and what they're doing. We play this constant comparison game that we have to do it as good as them or have to, have the ability to, to prioritize or organize as good as others. God did not call you to be the manager of another person's life. He called you to manage what he's given to you. It's called stewardship. Joshua is face-to-face with stewardship. You are now called to lead this great people. But the amazing thing is, God doesn't leave it on Joshua's shoulders. We see the frailty of man. Let's look at the timing, the tone, and the theme of the first three verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. What's the timing here? After the constant barrage of doubtless faithlessness, the wandering in the wilderness, a, a trip, honestly, from Egypt to the promised land is a matter of days, weeks even, depending on the n- number and the mass of people who are traveling, which was Israel was a great people, hundreds of thousands of people traveling. The fact that it took 40 years ought to astound us of the fact that God continued to be patient with them. To endure, that's what, that, that's what patience is, is long-suffering, enduring the suffering of their constant back-and-forthness. 
In fact, we see also in the story of Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, being with God in the very presence of God. What are the people of Israel doing at the bottom of the mountain? Building an idol in the same shape and in the same form as Egyptian gods. The golden calf. No wonder it took them 40 years. The tone of this verse has judgment upon it. Moses is dead. That was promised. That was not something that was left open-ended or a suggestion or vague to the people of God. God made it very clear. I will be with you this entire time. Follow me. I will lead you into the land of promise just as I led you out of the land of oppression. Follow me. But just like Peter, when he was on the, on the water, looked around and saw all the crashing waves around, the people of Israel saw all that they had or wanted or didn't have and started playing the comparison game. They thought, we had so much more in Egypt. I wish we could just go back. And God says, no. There are consequences to unfaithfulness. If I told you that I was 99, 99% faithful to Jenny, That means I was 100% unfaithful to Jenny. It doesn't matter. But yet, in the same time, when God's people were constantly going against him and adultering themselves out to other gods, false gods, pagan gods, from the place that would kept them in bondage for so long, God continued to endure, continued to commit himself to his people. Why? Because God keeps his promises. The theme of these verses from the, from the frailty of man is that sin has consequences. We see that even in the book of Joshua chapter 7. God commands the people of, Israelite, people of Israel to go into the land of Ai. It's such a small town. It doesn't even get a full name. It gets two letters, Ai, and destroy it. A great nation like Israel who defeated the Amalekites gets whipped by this small force, Ai, because sin had entered the camp of Israel. There was a man named Achan who took what he was not supposed to take. And it not only cost Israel the lives of their fellow countrymen and fellow soldiers, it cost Achan and his family their lives. There's a story in the book of Judges. Go read it if you can. It's, a study. it's the story of, oh, I forget his name, had it tip of my tongue. It's a story of God telling the Israelite people as they, as they travel, do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. Eli, Elihu, that's his, that's his name. The story of Elihu, do not touch the Ark of the Covenant, for if you do, you will die. The covenant begins to fall. Elihu thinks he's helping God out, reaches out, touches the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. What happens? God strikes him dead immediately because sin has consequences. The promise of God is for our benefit. The promise and the word of God is for our good, not for our destruction. In fact, it was the doubt of God's goodness that led mankind into sin in the first place. Sin has consequences. Judgment was exacted. Judgment was given 
God even kept his promise to Moses that if you people do not follow me, you will not get to enter the promised land. And no one over the age of 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, were allowed to enter the promised land. But even in the face of the frailty of man, we see also the faithfulness of God. Look at the, look at the God side of these three verses, the timing, the tone, and the theme. God didn't miss a beat. Moses, my servant, is dead, but now you rise, you go, lead these people into the promised land. God kept his word and he disciplined his children. God's strength was made perfect in their weakness. You cannot do this yourself. That's because you're not supposed to. I'm going to do it. I've already done it because I've already decreed it to be done. The knowledge of our God is infinite, but his knowledge is a reflection, is an extension of his decree. He knows all things because he has decreed all things. And there's no getting around that. He has decreed this to happen. Verses 4 and 5, we see again the frailty of man, but also the faithfulness of God. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun, which would be in the west, it shall all be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The frailty of man is that this territory was not possible on their own. If it relied upon the faithfulness of man, they'd still be in the wilderness. They'd still be wandering aimlessly. Although, because God decrees all things, their wandering was not aimless to him. It was aimless to them, but not to him. This land was not something that they could have achieved on their own. They were tossed back and forth constantly. They were going back and forth and mixed between worship and worry. And we see the theme here is the same throughout all of human history. As people, we are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love, but the God who loved us. All this land I will give to you. No man shall be able to stand before you. That's pretty... Exhaustive. No man shall be able to stand against you. Who does that leave out, though? God himself. No man can stand against you because no man can do what I do. God is the God of promise. God is the God of goodness. The faithfulness of God in these verses. We see this territory was promised to them because it belongs to to him. It was promised to the people of Israel because it belonged to God in the first place, and he can do with it what he chooses. He can promise it to those whom he chooses. He has all sovereignty, he has all control, he has all ability to do that which he, he desires. Psalm 50, verse 10, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but even more so, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 14.
God, again, continues to speak, continues to endure the constant faithfulness, unfaithfulness of the Israelites. And he says in chapter 10, verse 12, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love the to love and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of him, which I am commanding you today for your good. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God has the freedom to do that which he chooses to do, and he has chosen and he has decreed to give his people a nation but it requires, it requires that his people follow him and no one else. That's the nature of a covenant. That's the nature of the fulfillment of this covenant and the continued fulfillment of the covenant that he made to Abraham, that he would make Abraham's seed a great nation, that he would lead them into a land of promise, into a land of rest flowing with milk and honey, because ultimately it is a shadow and a copy of what he is doing on a much bigger level, a much more cosmic level, a much more beautiful level than we can see here on this earth, because these are just shadows and copies of what is to come. All of this land I am giving to you because, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because your faithfulness and your worship was so mesmerizing that I just felt like I needed to give you something, but because I promised your forefathers. And not out of anything good they could have done, but out of the goodness of his own character. There's a forgotten teaching in the modern world, that the simplicity of God, not that God is in any way simple, though he is in many ways, and he makes himself simple to us, clear, not shallow, but the simplicity of God. God is all that he has. The character of God is unshakable and unchanging. Therefore, his word is unshakable and unchanging. Psalm 119.89, your word is fixed firmly in the heavens. God doesn't change. In fact, people who claim that the God of the Old Testament, like we're reading here, is different than the God of the New Testament, do not understand the Trinity. They do not understand the unchangingness of God. If God were different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament, then God has sinned against himself. Everything that happens in the Old Testament not only has the approval of God the Son and God the Spirit, they also are involved in the execution of those plans. We need to take God's word seriously. The tone of verses 5, 4 and 5 is that God knows the outcome because he has decreed it, but the theme is that there is intimate communion with God because of his covenant promise. That moves us into verse 6. It's the first of three statements from God to Joshua to encourage him, to be reminded of who's really in charge. He says, be strong and courageous, you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The frailty of man comes with the fact that Joshua has this new burden of expectation and a new burden of execution. He's expected to follow the great leader and pillar of the Israelites' people, Moses. In fact, if there are three people in the Jewish religion or in the, in the Israelite nation that you don't mess with, you don't offend, it is Abraham, Moses, and David. You do not put yourself on the same level as them. That's why it was so offensive to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the common people who depended upon them to explain God's word to them. That's why it was so offensive to them that Jesus would say, I am greater than Abraham. The law of Moses points to me and that I am from the tribe of David. That I will stand as king, as lord, and as ruler but not in the way that you think. Not in the way that Joshua inherited the promised land to conquest, even though that was the decree of God, to conquer a people and to, to take the land that God had promised to them. Christ would come. He would conquer the greatest enemy. And he would do it in a way that makes no sense. The greatest enemy is death, separation from God, eternal damnation for that which we truly deserve because we are constantly unfaithful. We have periods of great worship, but there are also extreme amounts of worry. There is great amount of applauding God for who he is, but also great anxiety that stems from our own insecurities. Jesus would come. He would conquer the greatest enemy, which is death. And he would do so in a way that would that did not make sense, even to the disciples. A conqueror is supposed to come in, rid the land of the, uh, the oppressors, ride in on a white horse, declare his power and his greatness. Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? Because he promised that he would. His conquest was not of a land in the created world. His conquest was to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin, towards sinners like you and like me, to give us access to the intimacy and the community with God that was impossible because everyone in sin is hostile to God and no one seeks after God. We see the faithfulness of God here in this text. He says, be strong and courageous three times to encourage and to give strength that goes beyond what he could possibly muster up himself, Joshua. He says, I will be with you four times throughout the verses one through nine. 
He mentions Joshua's mentor four times throughout the verses one through nine. But if you go back, if you read for yourself one through nine, just those first nine verses of the book of Joshua that set the tone for the rest of the book, you will see God mentioning his promises, his words, his commands over 16 times. You got to pay attention to it because it's subtle. Things like every place that your soul, soul of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised. No man shall stand before you. That was actually a promise given earlier. That was a promise given to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy that no one will be able to stand against you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was his commitment and his covenant with the people of Israel before Moses died. He said, be strong and courageous and you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore, his words, I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to the law that I gave to Moses. It's by following this law and doing according to all that is said that you will have great success, not just great success, not the kind of success that we talk about here on, on earth, but the ability to understand the true wisdom of God. True godly wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Understanding rightly who God is and seeing him clearly for who he says he is and taking him seriously at his word leads us and calls us to the right way of living. Over 16 times, God mentions and reaffirms his word to get us to verses 8 and 9 where we see the, uh, the potential for the human heart to drift, to be distracted, to despair, to doubt. This is what God's faithfulness and his goodness promises. This book of the law, verse 8, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it on, meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. This call of not allowing the book of the law, the same, the same scriptures that many of the prophets, that many of the people in the New Testament, Jesus himself would recall back to and say, this is the word of God. Do not let it depart from your, from the, do not let it depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Only then will you experience true prosperity because true prosperity is not what we have manipulated and what we have assured ourselves of what prosperity looks like today. It is the ability to be and to commune with God himself. The blessing, the faithfulness of God, his goodness is shown in his faithfulness that what he has promised is what he will bless us with. Meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do according to what is said for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Why? Because the blessing is not what God can give you, it's God himself. The benefits of knowing God it is not something that we have to strive for and to attain. It is something that God has graciously extended to us through his word and is a God who speaks. He breaks our bondage to sin. Have I not commanded you, verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, terrified. Do not tremble. Do not be dismayed. Do not be shattered or broken. Why? Because the Lord is God. The Lord God is with you wherever you go. We must see Christ in the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Christ. 
The Gospels point at Christ. The rest of the New Testament points back to Christ. In fact, that phrase, Yahweh, your God, is with you, would be fulfilled. When God would send his son to be born of a virgin, to be named Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is a derivative of the name Joshua. Did you know that? It is a New Testament derivation of the Old Testament name Joshua. Yahweh is our salvation. Our prayer is that God, we would, our hearts would be wholly, fully bound to God's word. There is no level to which you can possibly raise up God's word and it not reflect the true nature of his goodness. One of my favorite, as I'll, I'll close with this, one of my favorite books, especially recently, we've been reading it to Molly, one of my favorite books, another book similar to Lord of the Rings, is the book Pilgrim's Progress. If you don't know Pilgrim's Progress, written by a man named John Bunyan, who was an early Puritan, um, go buy the book. Pilgrim's Progress. Download it on your Kindle, whatever you need to do, because in the days of the Puritan believers, they typically owned two books. The Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. About a young man named Christian. It's an allegory of the, the Christian faith. A young man named Christian who is equally as plagued with the doubts, the, the disheartenments, the sufferings, the anguish, the exhaustion that comes with following Christ journeying to his presence, journeying to the celestial cities, met with many different challenges, different, different uh, tasks that he must do. This is uh, taken out of one of the chapters uh, referred to as the hill of difficulty. He has to climb this giant hill. He has two little friends that come with him. They see the size of the hill. Their names are Mistrust and Timorous. Still have no idea what Timorous means. But they see this hill. They see the steepness of it. They see the, the danger of it. They don't want to do it. And they're trying to convince Christian to go back to his hometown. In fact, Christian's hometown is referred to as the city of destruction. Christian sees it. He's heard the promises of the king. He delights for nothing else but to go and to see him. This is what he says after his friends begged him to turn back. Christian says this, to go back to my own town is nothing but death. To go forward is nothing but the fear of death and life everlasting beyond that. I will yet go forward. He understood the promise that God keeps his promises because that which God has promised is what God fulfills. the goodness of God in the midst of our uncertain times. I see the brokenness. I see the world for what it is. Desperately, desperately clinging to something, but anchored in nothing. Christ is our hope.
Christ is our strength. We have an anchor in the veil of who God is, and we have access to God through Him. I encourage you, every person in this room watching our live stream, examine your heart. Understand that there is frailty that we must admit to. There are limitations that we must surrender to. There are limitations that we must acknowledge because it's when we understand our limitations that God's strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. We have to understand our limitations because that helps us to rightly see who we are in light of who God truly is. And it calls us to live according to the goodness of God, to not depart from it to the right or to the left, but to stand strong, firmly rooted in the word of God. That is how your way becomes prosperous. That is how you have good success because you receive intimacy with God that can be found nowhere else. We praise God for his word. Would you pray with me now and praise God for how he has spoken to us today? I'd like for you all to take a moment to examine your hearts if you need to do what Pastor did last time and to, to use your chair as an altar, to use your chair as a place of avoiding distractions, laying down doubts. You may do so, but I encourage you to examine your hearts as I do myself. There's a burden of getting to preach the Word of God causes me to tremble to know that I am responsible for the things that I am communicating to you all but together through the word of God we can be strong and we can be courageous so Father I pray that you would help us to rightly examine our hearts to examine them against your word to bring our lives into line with what you have said to understand Lord that our actions our attitudes reflect the state of our hearts are we so consumed and concerned with our own strength doing things our own way that we forget about you. The Israelites did. They were so consumed with doing things their own way that they even began to make idols. Or they began to do things that were right in their own eyes and they disregarded your word completely. My challenge for my own life, for my own family, for my, for my church, is the same challenge that Joshua gave at the end of the book. Choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve you. In humility and in true transparency, I pray that that would be the thing that we can say to you, Lord. Not our own strength, not in our own goodness, not relying upon our own righteousness, but we relying upon you. 
We praise you for your goodness in the midst of our uncertain times. And it's in your son's name that we pray, that we're allowed to pray, that we are welcomed into your presence to pray. And all God's people said, Amen.